0: The Hobbit The Lost Story Written by Brian Wallace We here at the Provincial Theatre Troupe are immense fans of the cinema and the most recent year of 2014 brought us many fine films that were hailed both critically and at the box office we are very pleased to have two of the creative minds behind one of 2014's greatest cinematic endeavours here with us to shed some light. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Peter Jigson and Sir Ian McKellarie. It's lovely to be here today Sir Patrick. We are delighted to have you with us. Now let's get right to the chase. We have acting royalty in our presence here.
1: <laughs> I'm delighted to finally be back in my first home, the
0: stage. Thank you for having us. You raise a beautiful point, Sir Ian. You are a god of the theatrical boards, if I may say so. A thespian of such titanic skill that were Shakespeare alive today, he might very well rewrite every part so as to be played by you. (laughs) You are too kind. Now a film such as this requires a great many special effects and locations and technical wizardry, and I can't help wondering, how you adjusted to that?
1: Well, one day, Peter came to me with an orange and said,
0: this is smart now, and that was that. Now, Peter, you have a thrilling discovery that you want to share with all of the fans of The Hobbit, particularly all the fans that thought you were a bellend for turning into a trilogy? Yes, I wanted to present
2: to you and all the fans out there my reasons for doing that. You see, Sir Felton, when I was finishing up the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I was spending a lot of time in the Oxford Library researching the life of J.R.R. Tolkien. One night, while I was very deep in the sticks, in an area of the library that I am sure no one had been in for quite some time, I came across an amazing discovery. I found Tolkien's original manuscript for The Hobbit. And it was a trilogy! Goodness, what a find! Indeed it was. Imagine my shock that all this time we had been getting it wrong. The Hobbit was never meant to be a story about a Hobbit, no, it was, in reality, an incredibly long and deeply involved story about characterless dwarves, cyborg elf ninjas, completely unromantic interspecies love stories, and the hilarious hijinks of the assistant to the mayor of Lake Town.
0: Astounding!
2: Uh, When Peter came to me with this, I, I was blown away.
1: Imagine all the time we've been wasting on Bilbo. The crux of the story clearly revolves around a confused wizard and his bird crap covered wizard friend who's a veiled drug reference in search of a Cheech and Chong film, and their quest to go to a remote tower and
2: find something there. I mean, the plot takes up the better part of two books. If you don't mind, I would very much like to read a few selections so that your audience can understand why I had to make the choices I made, so as to stay true to Tilkin's original intent. Oh.
0: We would be thrilled to hear Sir Ian read aloud.
2: Now, I was thinking I would read it and Ian could go off and do something else for a while and sort of come back in at the end when everything is mostly over. Of course. I guess I'll go see if Craft Services
0: has any oranges for me. Someone get Sir Ian an orange, and maybe a variety of other citrus fruits, in case he feels the need to rehearse a scene. Please, transport us, Mr. Jigson, to the teeming fantasy realm of Middle-earth. Book 1.
2: There and Back Again. The story of the many goings-on of Middle-earth that led up to my masterpiece, Lord of the Rings, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Chapter 1. There once was a hobbit who lived in a hole in the ground, and his name was Bilbo Baggins. He was smoking some pipeweed, and then, whoa, there was Gandalf who you remember from before when I wrote Lord of the Rings, was a very mysterious and cool wizard. He had a whole bunch of dwarves show up at Bilbo's house and they all ate food and burped a bunch and then sang a show tune, something they would never do again ever. Anyway, after a really long bunch of slavish devotion to my first draft of The Hobbit, they all started on a journey. I'm going to skip ahead to the good part. Most of this stuff is just like the first novel, but there is like this one orc that really hates the sexiest dwarf and they are tracking them for a long time while the dwarfs try and go get some gold. Anyway, Bilbo gets the ring from Gollum and Gandalf goes off to craft services, I mean to find the darkness and leaves the hobbit and dwarves in a forest where they get captured by elves. I'm going to pick it up here. Then Bilbo saw Legolas and was totally in awe of his lithe but muscular body and he easily saw that this was the most amazing being he would ever meet. Also there was a lady elf who had a lady elf boner for the youngest second sexiest dwarf and given their age difference it was basically fantasy statutory. But whatever. Skipping, skipping, skipping. See now we are into book two, The Sexiest Elf Ever, The Beryl Ride to Glory. About 90% of this book is an incredibly long and well-choreographed action scene that ignores physics and a barrel journey that is reminiscent of a water theme park ride. Also, this passage happens. <sighs> then Legolas did a seriously sick twisted flip double McTwist while riding a dead orc body like a skateboard. God, it was so gnarly. Also, Terriel the elf chick did some cool stuff and Bumbo was fat and completely mute the whole time. As you can see, he's writing on a whole different level here.
0: It is remarkable his foresight into the world of fantasy and, indeed, our own world. Exactly.
2: And this is what people didn't know about why I made the films I made. For another example, here in the third film, uh, book, I mean book, called The Alfred Chronicles, Slapstick and Unpleasantly Humorless Cross-Dressing Jokes, Here is a section where you spend a good 40 minutes of time on Bad the Bowman and his family and the hilarious child abandonment hijinks with cowardly Alfred, the assistant to the mayor of Lake Town. There were quite a lot of people that told me I should focus more on The Hobbit since the studio insisted his name be in the title, but I think I was justified in leaving in all 49 pages of those hijinks in untouched form from the book.
0: It was the only way to be true to the author. Exactly,
2: and that's what I wanted to do. The author's tone and spirit had to be on every frame shown on the screen. Did I change some things? Of course I did. I felt completely justified in taking away the throwaway killing of Bilg by Beyond the Werebear that airdrops in from the talons of an eagle transforming into a bear bomb as he falls and then absolutely shreds the goblin army and decapitates Bulg. All were roaring like the most hardcore
0: metal worth anything to ever exist. It was a brilliant choice to involve two characters, none of whom were the main character, in a long and protracted ice battle that, again, defied the laws of physics.
2: I took a lot of inspiration from Super Mario Brothers, especially for Legolas' battle with Beld. Kids these days need video games placed into the films they're watching, otherwise they fall asleep. Certainly, no one was going to fall in
0: love with Bjorn, the hardcore metal bear. Oh, and that leads us into that great scene in which the lines are uttered, One hundred goblin mercenaries are here. Me and Dwalin will handle them. Which makes perfect sense given that earlier Bogg's prepubescent child had killed one goblin in limp-wristed panic after the titular hobbit had handed goblins a series of their own asses with some rocks.
2: (laughs) I wanted the goblins and orcs to be the battle droids of my unnecessarily long people. Also don't forget that at this point in the story there's an elf that is riding a giant bat upside down this passage illustrates that moment perfectly. Then Legolas leapt onto the troll and used an arrow in his brain to steer him into saving his elf friend Tariel. It was seriously the most sickest thing you ever saw, and Tariel couldn't even.
0: Breathtaking. He's a
2: literary fountain of godhood. And this last passage I read here will show you just how deep Tolkien went with the characters and their arcs in this version. Legolas looked sexy and very glum, because Daryl was having too many feels after her sexy dwarf friend died. Legolas's dad came up to him. "'What's up, sexiest, most beautific fruit of my elf loins?' he asked the frowning Legolas. "'I think I have to go away for a little bit and think and stuff and things,' sighed Legolas sadly. His father said, "'Very well. You should go hang out with the Dunedain. There is one among them who might return. "'To be king!' You should fellowship with him. He is known as Strider, but his real name you will have to discover for yourself. Why, do you not know his name or something? said Legolas. You'll just have to discover his true name. Also, he's Tim. Legolas began to walk away. His father spoke again. Oh, and your mum loved you. What, said Legolas? Never mind. His dad dismissed him with a wave of his hand, and you'll just have to wait to hear more about the most amazing, sexy, gorgeous, strong, and willowy, supple, yet firm elf you've ever
0: heard of before until
2: the next trilogy that I already wrote.
0: Wow, what a thrill ride. Does the Hobbit ever get home? Oh yeah, probably.
2: And the dwarves? Yeah, they died, I think. I don't know. To tell you the truth, after Legolas left, I was already starting to look into the lost copy of the Silmarillion I had found in the stacks. It's titled The Silmarillion and 1,000 Other Sweet Fantasy Battle Skateboarding
0: Tricks. I can't wait for you to see it. And we can't wait either. Oh! Oh! Hello, Sir Ian. Uh, hello. Is Peter done reading? you just finished. I'm afraid you missed almost all of it.
2: Oh, I'm sure I could have shoehorned myself in
1: somehow if I cared. Uh, come on, Peter. There are no oranges at craft services. Just some trolls
0: picking their noses. <laughs> Let's go. Thank you for coming by. Never again. end. Yeah. Fairy Tale Franchise, written by the Brothers Wallace. The L.A. sun shines on an office building that is more glass than wall and more fern than furniture. Noted director and occasional geek messiah, Joss Sweden enters the office of Hollywood mega-producer Ryan Cameron, who is embroiled in an intense phone call. I don't care what it takes, Rico.
2: If you have to swim the damn canaries out to that island on your back, that's what's gonna happen. The director says he needs them by sunrise. Do you want him to miss reverse
0: magic hour? He rolls his eyes and covers the mouthpiece. Sorry, Joss, with you in a second. Sharks? Buddy, if that island isn't covered in colorful birds
2: by morning, I'm going to shove an entire shark week's worth of sharp tooth discomfort
0: up your ass! He slams the phone down on the desk.
1: Is
2: everything all
0: right? Yeah, Clint Eastwood's location manager was being a bitch about getting a rubber raft
2: of canaries to an archipelago off the Aleutian islands. Did you know canaries aren't indigenous to Alaska? Isn't that what Eskimos live on? I thought it was their staple diet or something. I don't know, I I don't think so. Whatevs, not important. Just rolling. What is important is did you read the stuff I sent over to you?
1: Yeah, actually, that's why I'm here. Why exactly is there a treatment for a prequel to Tom Sawyer on my desk that starts with the line, It was a dark night on the Mississippi. The Tesseract glowed with malice. Right? It just puts you there! Well, I've read Tom Sawyer a few times, but I don't remember at any point Becky Thatcher dressing in skin-tight black lycra, and, and I swear I'm not trying to be critical here, having Injun Joe wearing a horned helmet and forcing the people at the picnic to bow to him until Huck Finn shows up and, um, quote, smites him with a shield of justice? Sounds just a
2: little bit familiar. It's familiar because badass recognizes badass. Chuck Norris told me that in an awards dinner urinal once. Just bro, Baggins. Okay, look. About the time that Huck
1: and... Ah, I see that you have kept n-word, Jim's entire name, start flying down the mighty Mississippi on a helicarrier, I said to myself, this is the Avengers, but with Mark Twain characters.
2: All right, you got me. But isn't that like the best idea ever, Josie and the Pussycats? No, it's awful. Okay, okay, not your cup of tea, Jocington Bear. But let me lay this idea on you. It's a sequel The greater Gatsby, but this time, Gatsby's a werewolf, Daisy's human, and Tom's a vampire. Love triangle! That's Twilight. That's fucking money! That's what that is. But if we're not feeling like printing money, Joss Xander Hamilton, there are other options. What about a movie? where all the greatest movie monsters get together to fight against this big evil force. Dracula can be all smooth and good with the ladies, and Frankenstein is all, hark, hard, Frankenstein, smash! And the Wolfman can be this brooding anti-hero. Universal Studios
1: is already doing that.
2: What? Really?
1: Yeah, they asked me to direct it, like, three weeks ago. I said no. Dang. Well, what about- Before you start- Is it the Avengers with characters from another story? No! It's an update of the Breakfast Club. Oh. Well, that I can get behind. Update it for the new generation? Yeah,
2: you know, the cultural landscape has totally changed.
1: Right. I guess the kids could be multi-ethnic. You could set it in a less traditional school setting, or... Uh, there's a lot you could do with the characters. The, the core elements of the story are timeless, but you're right, the way society expresses them have definitely changed.
2: We are hitting this out of the park together, Jose and Seiko, like a thing on Mind Melt! But, and I know this is shifting paradigms, what if instead of a principal, they have to fight against this rebellious AI that runs the school? That's pretty out there, but I'm listening. And he tries to turn them against each other, but they unite against him and use their powers to... Okay, mess. are you going to call it Breakfast Club? Age of Vernon? Oh, like a Klingon mind-meld, Jasker de la Hoya.
0: Okay, I'm out. Joss rises and begins to leave the room. Ryan yells after him. But we got Molly Ringwald! okay, okay. What about Sleepless in Seattle with Thor and Black Widow? Or what about the
2: Expendables, but we call it the Expectacles, but they have all these superpowers and they avenge things. God damn it, just make me an Avengers movie, Jossberry Crunch!
0: He fumes for a moment and picks up the phone. Sharon, give me Zack Snyder.
3: The end.
0: The Other Oscars, written by Jordan Wallace. Interior Day, a small auditorium. There are just over a dozen people scattered throughout the seats, meaning much of the already modest theater is empty. Just below the stage, a bored-looking man with a trombone is sitting listlessly in a chair. A man with a very scruffy beard looks out from behind the curtain and coughs to get the trombonist's attention. (coughs) After a few tries, he succeeds. The trombonist nods, sighs, and begins to play a fanfare. The man with the scruffy beard comes walking out on the stage, waving to faint applause. Thank you!
1: Thank you! You're too sweet. Uh, We've got a lot of awards to deliver tonight, and some really great entertainment. Everybody give it up for America's number one studio trombonist, Barry Kildare! Yeah! And here to present our first award tonight for Best Grip, it's Todd
0: Wythe! A bearded man with a few tattoos showing wanders out on stage. He nods at the audience and waits for the trombonist to stop. He snorts and clears his throat. throat) Yeah, alright man. Thanks. Um, it's uh, nice when shit is where it needs to be on set. And that's what grips do, so... Thanks. Looks like we've got Manuel Alejandro. Bob Kittridge and John Ho. He tears open the envelope. It's John Ho. Congratulations, Johnny. Huh? He ain't here? Anyone want to accept this for him? The trombonist has stepped up and proffers a hand. Cool, man. Thanks. He wanders off stage to a smattering of clapping. Harold re-enters. Thank you, Mr. Wythe,
1: and congratulations, Mr. Ho. Uh, some stiff competition there. Coming up next, we have Best Craft Services, and here to present the award is the president of the Film Guild, Peter Trillman. The
0: trombonist blows a fanfare, and there are a few claps. No one emerges onto the stage. Peter Trillman, ladies and gentlemen. Pete? There is some hurried whispering off stage, and a Latino gentleman wearing stained custodial clothes is pushed onto stage. Um, are you Pete Tillman? Uh, the man looks back offstage for guidance. Yes. Harold smiles glassily and goes along with it, shaking his hand and handing him the envelope.
1: Great, great. We're so happy you could join us. Pete,
2: okay, you want me to open the envelope? That, that'd be great, yeah.
0: The gender looks trepidatiously at the envelope and opens it. He frowns and squints. We, winner's name go, go here. Harold grabs the
2: envelope back. Where did you even? Jesus, give it here. Well, that's great. We didn't even fill
1: this one out. Really? Come on, guys, can we at least pretend we're trying? Am
0: I done, man? Because I got a job I got to get back to. Harold does his best to recover.
1: <laughs> and don't we all, Mr. Tillman, don't we all, the business of making movies, which
0: we are an essential part of. Yeah, OK. The janitor walks off stage, shaking his head. Harold rallies from his anger and smiles out at the audience. He sees someone with their hand up and points to them. Um, yeah? Do we have a question out there?
3: Sorry to make a fuss, it's just, uh, is this not Jersey Boys? I thought this was a theater for Jersey Boys? (sighs) No,
1: this is not Jersey Boys. This is the technical Oscars.
3: What? Is that, is that like the Oscars?
1: It is the Oscars. It's, it's the Oscars for all the people who actually make the film. The men and women who shape the way that But mo- none of you are famous. None of us are movie stars, no.
0: Wait, so there will be no celebrities?
1: There's going to be people who've been making movies in this town for decades.
0: I think he means no. There is a commotion at the back of the theater and the doors burst open. A man stands there puffing for breath. Everybody stop! There's a Kardashian digging a shit on the sidewalk! Excitement hits the crowd and there's a mad scramble as the auditorium empties. Harold stands in mute frustration, fists clenched. Slowly, the trombonist plays a single downsliding note. Thanks. The end.
1: Chasing the Boom, The Mikey Ocean Story. In 1999, stunt coordinator and pyrotechnic expert Mikey Ocean was given the opportunity to direct his first feature film. The following look behind the scenes is a look at the shoot that claimed the lives of many involved, is the reason that Ray Romano's left eye twitches, and why Roseanne Barr no longer works in the film industry. The task was simple. Mikey Ocean was contracted by Warner Studios to direct their remake of Sound of Music. Luckily, Howard Baker was the man hired for the -the behind-the-scenes documentary and he was very thorough. His work is remarkable and serves as a posthumous testament to his skill. He was tragically killed during filming when a flaming capuchin monkey struck him in the head during the filming of 16 Going On 17. Here is the first production meeting between producer Ryan Cameron, director Mikey Ocean, and location manager Paul Manning.
3: Oh, Ryan, I love it. I I just don't see
1: how we can ever hope to get Costa Rica to double for Austria.
3: Oh, man, you think
2: people actually look at the background of shots? Jungle? Austrian Alps? Same thing.
3: I think it totally reinvents the piece. And also, the safety codes down there are like, Non-existent, so it kind of works on lots of levels. Right, but I just don't see
2: how it's going to... If gonna... Austrians didn't love tax codes like I love cocaine, then this could be a discussion, but it isn't and they don't. We shoot in Costa Rica. Just get some salt flakes for
3: snow and, I don't know, make it... The amount of explosions is totally going to cover everything anyway. I mean, my lens is either going to be full of asses or ashes.
2: <laughs> God, yes. That's why you my boy, son. Now,
3: you had casting news. What is it? I signed our Captain Von Trapp and Maria last night at a bar in Santa Monica. Oh, God.
2: Well, who are they? Don't keep me in suspense. I did five lines before this meeting. The the suspense literally
3: might kill me. It's Ray Romano and Roseanne Barr. As
1: Captain Von Trapp and Maria? Is that really the best... How much?
3: 500k for both. They were desperate for something that wasn't a sitcom. (laughs) Holy God, I just conceived and gave birth to a money baby. That is brilliant! Money shots for everyone!
1: With the decision to shoot in Costa Rica firmly cemented, the production departed Los Angeles in May of 1999. Production immediately ran into a problem, with May being the start of the rain and hurricane season in Costa Rica. This led to the following moment occurring during Hurricane Oswaldo.
3: People, we have to get this shot off. Now, Ray, you're going to take the bike up the ramp and jump the crocodile pit. Are the crocs ready, Joey? Yeah, the weather hasn't agitated, but they just look really badass when they're pissed off. Hey, uh, are we sure this is safe? Oh, Would I put you in danger, Ray? Oh, Would I? I'm still bruised from the last time you asked that question. Uh, Ray, you kill me, bro. Let's do this. Get Roseanne ready to uh, swing in on the trapeze after the second explosion. Do we have bikes queued up on set for playback? My phone
1: is starting to ride up. Is that going to be an issue, Mickey? <laughs>
3: is scissor ashes, baby. Let's roll. Is it a problem that I have no idea how this bike works? Like, are there brakes? Ray, Ray, Ray. Does the bike have brakes? Is God bringing down this hurricane on us right now because I killed a hooker last week and buried her in an alleyway in San Jose? These are questions for the afterlife, Romano. Let's roll! My phone just snapped apart. Perfect! Roll camera, action!
1: After ten minutes of filming, the production was already five million dollars over budget and three weeks behind schedule. Many on the set blamed Mikey Ocean for his extensive amount of pyrotechnic effects involving animals and his demand that all crew and cast shoot in the nude because, as he stated, it made everything more raw. In late July, producer Ryan Cameron arrived to check on the shoot, now $50 million over budget and three years behind schedule. Documentarian Howard Baker was in a Costa Rican hospital, recovering from having his spine bent by a Russian dancing bear brought in for the My Favorite Things sequence. But his assistant, James Rowland, was there to capture the moment that Cameron and Ocean toured the set that day.
3: This is the water cannon I'm going to shoot Scarlet with during the I Am 16 Going On 17 song. Awesome.
2: What's your costume going to be like?
3: It's a bikini made of a cut-up white t-shirt. So all the titties then? All to the five million power, bro. See and that's just one way I'm keeping the budget down. Sweet, bro. Hey, we had to make a casting change. You know how it was going to be
2: Downey Jr. as Rolf, the Nazi boyfriend?
3: Yeah, bro. That bro had a bro like you wouldn't bro leave.
2: Agreed. But that's part of the problem. I think putting him in the hotel in the red light district was too much bro for him. I got a call from his sponsor or something saying that he relapsed and had to fly back to the States, and how in God's name did we think putting a former addict in a hotel that doubled as a drug front, had a coke processing plant in the basement was a good idea? Plus, a lot of other bullshit I didn't listen to. Point is, I brobbled down and got McConaughey as a replacement. He flew down with me, demanded a lot of money, but we're already a budget, so who cares?
1: The day of this scene was a true disaster, with a hurricane that producer Brian Cameron named Brogasm making landfall with winds of 90 miles an hour and a downpour of rain blasting sideways at the set. The decision to film the 16 going on 17 sequence went ahead as planned. Fresh from the hospital, Howard Baker was there to catch all the movie magic in his last brave
3: act. All right, all right, all right, it's like this, man, is age a number? If it is, then what are the numbers that I, as a resident of this planet, accept? Do they apply to me? I mean, back in Kilgore when I'm barbecuing ribs? it takes me three hours to slow roast those babies to perfection. Is that a number that defines my time? Is that the baseline where I can approach this scene from? I mean, 16, man. Going on 17. Where is that moment in your first man? You see what I'm saying? Whoa, yeah. Use that, bro. That is where it is. Feel that? That is real.
1: Is that going to work for you, Scarlett? I guess. I mean, this isn't really the role Ryan told me I was getting. At, at least I don't think it was. Because we had the meeting while I was drunk on the beach in Malibu. And uh, I think he traded me an ounce of mescaline to be in this movie. Also, why do you keep calling me Scarlett? Because <laughs> you're. Whoa, God. Are you Eddie Harrison? Yeah, man. I, I, I mean, am I a chick in this scene?
3: Hey, man, you define the role. The role does not define you. That's what I love to hear. We're shooting this mother. Line it up. Joey, are those monkeys ready to be lit up?
1: Yeah, but the monkey cannon's shooting them pretty erratically in the hurricane. Is that a problem?
3: Isn't that how we rehearse this? Did we rehearse this? We did, I swear. Just now. All time is happening now. This is now, is then, is tomorrow. All time is happening during all the time that has happened. I think I'm evolving into a higher being, bros. Let's shoot!
1: This was, unfortunately, the last behind-the-scenes sequence filmed. The film finally finished shooting in early 2003, three decades over schedule, and one billion dollars over budget. The original director's cut of the film clocked in at six hours. Mikey Ocean died of a drug overdose at a Chuck E. Cheese ball pit in Burbank in January of 2004 during the re-editing process. Producer Ryan Cameron took over and split the footage into three different films, releasing them over the next few years under the titles Christmas with the Cranks, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, and Quantum of Solace. The films all made a healthy profit, and Cameron bought himself a new Ferrari with a snow cone machine in the trunk as a reward. His next film, Jurassic Park 4: Hybrid Dinosaurs, was renamed Jurassic World and will hit theaters in June of 2015 and is said to contain the My Favorite Things sequence that Mikey Ocean filmed in 1999. In a way, Mikey's work will always live on. The
0: Agents of Hollywood, Johnny Depp. Written by Brian Wallace. Sun shines on the bright and beautiful city of West Hollywood, California. A few rays brightly light the office of Agent Howie Cushman. There is the buzz of an intercom. Mr. Cushman, Mr. Depp is here to see you. Send him in, please. The double doors open and Hollywood superstar Johnny Depp breezes in, smelling of patchouli and other original fragrances. Johnny, how are you?
1: I'm good, man. Uh, You know, your alley out back is, is really sensational.
0: Is it?
2: That's great.
1: Yeah, I, I slept out there last night, and Jesus, what, what a great bit of rest. Whatever cardboard boxes you guys got your printer paper in, it, it makes a great pillow.
2: Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, we aim to please, but, and I hate to bring this up, uh, you did promise me you weren't going to sleep back there again.
1: Look, ma'am, I've been sleeping in alleys for years. I'm not stopping now. Besides, it's for a roll. Which roll? The one where I'm that homeless guy who, who, who's the
2: greatest guitarist that no one ever heard about. I don't remember booking that part for you. Actually, as, as far as I know, you've never even been offered that part, John.
1: What? Hell, man, I could swear I was in here two months ago, and we talked about that.
2: It's the one Scorsese's doing. I haven't seen you in six months, and again, as far as I know, Martin Scorsese has never offered you a part. Well, damn, that that explains why he was
1: so confused when I tried to talk to him about my character research at that dinner last week. Well,
2: I'm ready for work, man. What do you got for me? I've been getting some really great stuff for you, John. Just gold has been flying through the door. Disney was in love with the way you made the wolf in Into the Woods into another great Deppian character.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that one felt right. Good
2: hat, stripy suit. I really gotta wave my arms around a lot. Ah, it was another classic performance. So... Disney sent over something that I think you're gonna love. Now I know you don't care much for voice work, but buddy, they want you in Frozen 2. How does that grab you? Mm, Frozen 2, huh? My, my kids loved the first
1: one. Isn't that the one where the chick and her sister trip balls and the snowman's come to life and, and then they kill it with sunshine? I uh, no, not quite. But
2: speaking of the snowman, they want you to be the voice of Olaf's brother, Chili. You're this really smooth, chalk-and-funny snowman who is very eccentric and has lots What's of- What's the hat like? Excuse me? The hat on the snowman. Is it funny and odd, but in a relatable way? Uh, let me see. No. In the sketches they sent over, he doesn't have a hat. Pass. What else you got? Well, hold on. I'm sure we could negotiate to put a hat on him.
1: Yeah, but... See, I'm, th- I'm looking at the snowman. And I think he should sound like an unreformed pedophile that just got released from the pen after doing 15 years of hard time. Is that too crazy for them, do you think? I mean, that sounds pretty similar to your Willy Wonka, and they love that. I mean, it's similar, uh, sort of in the same range, but that, that was a pedophile that had been eating chocolate in solitary confinement for a decade. They're, they're different, actually. I'm sure they are.
2: Uh, so we get a hat for him. And- a
1: really funny hat. But But that's sort of... That's sort of like a 1950s gangster hat, like, like a hat that Brando would have worn in the winter of 57, with with a purple sash tied around the brim. I'm sure they'll love it. And and when I dress up as the snowman, I want to have stick-ons that have tattoos of naked sailor ladies carved into the wood.
2: Uh, no. See, you'll, you'll be just the voice. Uh You know, you, you go into a booth and record the part, and then they animate the snowman. So, so wait, up. I-
1: I'm not going to be the snowman. Well, you're the voice of the snowman. How, how, how many times do I have to tell you I don't do that voice acting garbage. It's a lie. I won't do it, man. Orson Welles was a Transformer and he died from that crap. I won't touch it.
2: It kills great acting. John, theres I mean, this paycheck is... It's there's sweet, more John. to it's... life than money, man. Don't... Won't do it. What else have you got? Okay, you're the boss. Uh, let's see, I have something you're going to fall in love with. Hit me with it, man. It's a biopic about Vincent Van Gogh, and wait for it, Tim Burton's making it. Mm. Love it. Love it. Nice.
1: Tim knows how to really get the most out of a good funny hat. Always the best. So you'll do it. On one condition. I only want to paint pictures of elephants. What? Elephants, man. I I love painting pictures of them. I I think I need that... To ground the performance in myself. Just elephants. Yeah, I, I love the shape and texture of them. They're, they're real animals. They have a savage beauty to them. Tell Tim I'll only do it as long as he only paints elephants and obviously he has to have a funny and slightly off hat, but you don't really need to say that. Timmy understands real method.
2: Well, I have to say that I think the elephant thing might be a deal-breaker. You know, uh, Van Gogh painted some of the most iconic paintings in the world. People are going to wonder a bit about all the... elephants. That's the point, man. The,
1: the story isn't really about Van Gogh. It's, it's deeper, darker, more substantial than that.
2: I, I know, Timmy. He'll love this. Sadly, you're probably right. Well, I'll get the contract from them and we can get the ball rolling. Excellent. What else he got? They've offered you another Captain Jack part in the Pirates of the Caribbean 21 Jump Street crossover. Hat? They've added extra beads to the Captain Jack hat. Done. Great. Well, that does it, pretty much. Fantastic. Love this man. Loved it. Uh, keep being groovy, you know. Johnny Depp rises and heads for the door. Good talk, John. Remember to call me sometime in the next three months. Can't go losing you again.
1: I lost my phone, man. I'm not sure where it is. Zero.
0: Depp leaves. Howie presses the intercom. James, can you uh, get one of the interns to go out back
2: and search the dumpsters for a cell phone? Yeah. Yeah, it probably has a homemade painting
0: of an elephant as the background picture. Yes. Thank you. How he sighs and hangs up the phone. <sighs> the end.
1: This has been a dry run production.